0: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
1: Hello, young. Here's Elizabeth from the Washington Post.
0: Washington Post. This is Wesley. It's Laurie Aratani over at the Post. I'm good. <laughs> this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May sixth. Today, why the board of Boeing wasn't focused on airplane safety, the morality of horse racing and a Muslim comedian on being young and religious in America.
2: Everybody's pointing their finger at somebody else. The FAA, over the past few years, has directed more and more of the responsibility of certifying new airplanes to Boeing. And Boeing's directors told me on the record that they were looking at the FAA and looking at the official plane certification process to be handling the safety of the plane
1: do we go down to the test site and 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 watch the monitors to find out whether they're working accurately no we don't 2 months ago
0: an airplane crashed in Ethiopia killing all 157 people on board since then there has been intense scrutiny of the plane's manufacturer Boeing And there are questions of whether the design of their new 737 MAX 8 airplane caused this crash and another one in Indonesia back in October. Investigators don't know for sure what caused either crash. But in both cases, they believe that a sensor fed bad data to a software system. And that software system pushed the plane's noses downward. The jet has been grounded in countries around the world since the second crash.
3: Uh, Any plane currently in the air will go to its destination and thereafter be grounded.
2: After these two plane crashes, there's a lot of scrutiny around what are the systems in place that could prevent something like this from happening again? And who are the people in charge of preventing something like this from happening?
0: Doug McMillan is a business reporter for The Post.
2: And I thought it would be a good time to look at what does Boeing's board of directors do, what is their role in this company, and what have they been doing for the past six months and also the past decade while this plane was being designed and built and Boeing was installing new systems in it that potentially had a role in these two crashes.
0: Tell me more about this board and who is on it.
2: It's a group of very highly paid, very accomplished people, Uh, a lot of former CEOs of places like Allstate, Amgen, the current CEO of Duke Energy. Probably the biggest known names are Caroline Kennedy, the former U.S. ambassador to Japan and JFK's daughter, and Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, just joined the board last month.
0: And you said that they're highly paid. How much are they paid?
2: about $324,000 on average in cash and stock. And that's about the 29th highest pay for any corporate board.
0: And, and what is their level of responsibility or workload look like?
2: Yeah, so they meet about every other month. And they meet for one day. Wait, sorry. So they're paid
0: over $300,000 per year. It's a pretty good job. To meet once every other month.
2: Yeah. And that workload can go up or down. And definitely I'm hearing it's gone up in the past six months. They're now getting daily reports on what's going on with the 737 MAX crisis. But in a typical year, they meet six times a year. They're flown into Chicago or another city with Boeing facilities. Sometimes they'll go on field trips. But more frequently, they'll just meet at a five-star hotel and talk about what's going on with Boeing.
0: And the people on this board, the folks that you're describing, it sounds like they're not necessarily people with the most technical expertise, right? Like they're not engineers or people on the the manufacturing expertise side of things.
2: Yeah, they definitely have expertise. They have one former CEO of an airline, the former CEO of Continental Airlines, Lawrence Kellner, somebody I talked to for the story. And he can help Boeing – deal with its relationships with airline customers. They have a former Navy admiral. He can help the board clear the way with the government. But one of the things I found in the story and one idea that's come up in reporting the story is why isn't there an expert in aviation safety? Why isn't there at least one person sitting around the table who can ask penetrating questions about What is this MCAS software system, or how are the design choices that are going into the 737 MAX going to potentially impact the safety of this plane? They didn't have somebody sitting around the table who could ask that. One of the board members I spoke with, David Calhoun, essentially told me that they thought that this plane was safe and that they were trusting the certification process.
1: Does the board place a lot of confidence in that? You bet they do. Do we make sure that the rigor around those processes are good, and if they are reported to us uh, step by step, of, of course we do. Um, do. Do we ask questions about what the, what the difficult spots are in the certification process? Of course we do.
0: Well, so you reported on those conversations that happened in 2010 and 2011 as they were developing this plane. What were those conversations like?
2: So there was a lot of anxiety at the time because Boeing was – years late on its Dreamliner project, which is this giant commercial jetliner that they spent a lot of money and a lot of time creating, but they were already over budget and past their deadline on delivering that to customers. So the board at that time, according to the people I talked to, were worried about taking on a new project that was going to potentially cost them more money and go over deadline again. So that tension and that tone in the room, I think, informed the decision-making around the Boeing 737 MAX, which was not a completely new plane design. Instead of doing what they call a clean sheet plane design, which is just, let's design a completely new plane from scratch, they decided to reconfigure their existing popular line of jets called the 737 planes. That process would shave off you know, probably about three to four years. Typically, it takes around 10 years to design a completely new plane. But the 737 MAX was a reconfiguration, so it it took about six years. Their strategy to get a plane to market sooner to compete with their main rival Airbus had launched a more fuel-efficient plane. Their strategy paid off in that respect. They built a plane more quickly, and they probably saved some costs by reconfiguring the 737.
0: And at the time, how focused was the board on these reconfigurations in some aspects of the plane and whether that would affect the safety of the plane?
2: None at all. As as far as I can tell, the people who were in that room didn't ask any detailed questions about safety.
0: So fast forward to last year after the plane crash in Indonesia. How did the board respond to that?
2: So their immediate response is to figure out what are all the facts of this plane crash, and particularly, is there any evidence at this point pointing to a problem in the design of the plane? Now, this is a process that involves many different parties. It was a crash near Indonesia. So it involves Indonesian authorities. It involves the airline, Lion Air, as it was the airline responsible. Um, And it involves sometimes plane part manufacturers, but also Boeing comes to the table. So in that investigative process, they're getting details about what went on with the crash. And at some point, the findings point to this mcas software system was activated and at that point the board sits around the table looks at you know what is the mcas the board was learning about this system for the very first time they had not been briefed on it previously and they're asking themselves you know is this a system that could cause safety problems in other 737 maxes that are also out in the air right now so they're sitting around the table and asking themselves do you have enough evidence That would require us grounding that fleet. And David Calhoun, the board member that I spoke with, told me that there were enough extenuating circumstances that they didn't feel like they needed to ground the plane.
0: Did he say whether he regrets that now?
2: He said he doesn't regret that decision. Why not? He said in a conversation with us, I don't regret that judgment, and I don't think we got it wrong at that time and that place. And he said over and over that they looked at the details, the evidence that could have caused the crash, and they didn't see enough reason that this MCAS software system or any Boeing specific plane part was the cause of the crash. In hindsight, it's starting to look more and more like Boeing's parts and planes and products were the cause of the crash. But at the time, using the evidence they have, he doesn't regret that decision.
0: And then what happened after that second crash in Ethiopia?
2: So the company is plunged into chaos. They suddenly have two crashes, 346 deaths in the span of five months, and the entire attention of the world turned on them. This is a group of people that is used to operating in secrecy, and they're used to not having much scrutiny on their decisions. Suddenly, they are cast under a a very harsh spotlight, and there's a lot of pressure on their decision-making. Their initial instinct... Was to resist grounding the planes still. They still said that there wasn't enough evidence, even though at this point authorities around the world, China, Europe, other regulators around the world, are issuing grounding orders for the plane. Boeing continues to go out and say that this plane is safe and resist those calls. Up until uh, three days after the crash, when they obtained some evidence, they say, which showed that this MCAS software system was activated. At that point, the board met with the CEO. They decided that they should recommend a grounding order. And at that point, CEO Dennis Mullenberg gave a call to President Trump and said, hey, you know, we changed our mind. We think you should ground the planes.
0: A lot of people are saying that they believe that the board should have acted differently at different points in this process, that they could have prevented one, if not both of
2: these crashes. The board's biggest job is to ask questions. They are supposed to be there as representatives of the shareholders and say, what are you doing to ensure the safety of this plane after the first crash? Should this plane be grounded? Is there any reason to think that these planes are unsafe? And then after the second crash, the questions become more significant because all of a sudden the reputation of the company is on the line. I think that there's a good case to be made that in all of those cases, they didn't ask those questions.
0: And why didn't they ask those questions?
2: I mean, one, one reason might be that they, they lacked the expertise. Um, another reason might be that they feel like this was a cushy gig. They are paid partially in stock, so they are incentivized to raise the stock price of Boeing. And you could probably ask a question about whether that's the right incentive.
0: But when it comes down to it, can we really expect this board to be looking out for the safety of these planes? I mean, isn't that, in theory, the government's role as as a regulator to make sure that the planes are safe and that this board is ultimately going to be concerned with the bottom line of the company?
2: Yes. Ultimately, it is up to the government and... You know, we, the people who elect this government, you know, what kind of checks do we want to have on a company that is responsible for the safety of so many people? And there's a lot of evidence pointing to FAA and other regulators around the world dropped the ball in this case and weren't holding Boeing in check. You know, our reporting here is showing that Boeing can't really hold itself in check. So uh, I think that we're likely to hear more calls for better oversight of Boeing.
0: Doug McMillan is a business reporter for The Washington Post.
3: It was a very rainy day, and the track looked like a bowl of
0: soup. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Post. And on Saturday, she was
3: watching the Kentucky Derby. And as a really large field of 19 horses uh, came around the final turn... And he
1: burst through an opening on the inside of Maximum Security, and they're into the
3: stretch! The leader, Maximum Security, who had gone out front very early in the race and stayed out front, wandered a little bit to the side, skipping over a puddle. Then managed to pull away from the rest of the field and cross the finish line. Maximum
0: Security wins the Kentucky Derby, and Country second.
3: But the stewards then announced that they were examining the the race, and what they found after a 22-minute, a very long 22-minute wait, was that Maximum Security had actually impeded the progress of two other horses when he had moved to the side and and shied a little bit to avoid a puddle and they reversed the outcome of the race and they handed the race to a uh, 65 to one long shot. And it was the first time in the history of the Kentucky Derby that the first place horse was disqualified. Another horse named
0: country house was declared the winner.
1: You know, as far as the win goes, uh, it's, it's actually very, it's bittersweet in my opinion. I think they
0: made the right call. Sally says the disqualification brought up a lot of questions about the sport of thoroughbred racing and the rules that govern it.
3: The rules pretty clearly state that a horse has to maintain what they call his lane. He or she has to run in a pretty straight line. You have to maintain your lane to the point that you don't swerve in front of another horse. That's a dangerous thing that can cause a pretty bad chain reaction. And it can also you know, block another horse unfairly who's coming on. And uh, two other horses and their jockeys were pretty well impeded from maybe surging to the front, and so the stewards decided that that had actually altered the outcome of the race potentially.
0: I know that it's a, a serious rule meant to be in place to protect the horse's safety, but I just kind of I find it kind of funny that this is a foul that the horse did, and the horse
3: couldn't have known what the rules are of the race. That's exactly right, as the jockey said, he's a baby. You know, these are three-year-old horses. It's the equivalent of asking a 10-year-old to walk in a straight line. Uh, You know, they're just as liable to turn around and chase a butterfly. So that's one thing. These are very immature young horses. There's a lot of discussion about whether the thoroughbred season in America is abusive because these horses are so young. That's one factor. Another factor is, you know, the conditions of the track were truly awful, You know, there's been 23 deaths at Santa Anita racetrack out in California this season that ended up shutting the track down. And it was because of terrible track conditions, a lot of rain after a long period of drought, you know, very heavy rainfall. And so it looks like maybe the track was unsafe out in California. You know, I didn't like the look of that track. I mean, my heart was in my mouth the entire time. You know, uh, horses are running through that stuff on iron, you know, shoes. They canceled the Indy 500 when it's a wet track. Mm. Uh, You know, cars with four tires aren't considered, you know, safe to run at high speeds uh, on a wet track. And yet, for some reason, we make horses do it at the Kentucky Derby. And it really makes me nervous. And the Kentucky Derby is really very lucky they didn't have a catastrophe on their hands.
1: You've
0: been critical for a while about the thoroughbred racing industry and and about the sport. How do you think the events that transpired on Saturday embody some of the things that you feel are wrong with the sport?
3: Well, American thoroughbred racing has a far worse record than thoroughbred racing overseas. The fatality rate of American thoroughbred horses is five times higher than the fatality rate of thoroughbreds in Europe. The racing rules in Europe are much stricter. The practices are much more sensible. For instance, in France, there is a rule that you cannot whip your horse more than five times in a race. They strictly Hmm. regulate the use of the riding crop. Now, a riding crop can be a useful thing for the horse's safety in terms of keeping a young horse in a straight line. But on the other hand, American Pharaoh, who won the Triple Crown in 2015, we counted 32 blows to that horse Hmm. coming down the stretch of the Kentucky Derby. It's distressing to watch. It is abusive. And it potentially pushes a horse beyond its real limit. And so, things like that, you know, American thoroughbred racing organizations really have failed to address. They have failed to address masking agents and anti inflammatory overuse that masks injuries in horses. The financial structure actually encourages abuses of horses. There are a half a dozen pretty basic measures that American thoroughbred organizations could take to make the sport a lot safer and a lot less fatal, and they simply lack the will to do it. So you mentioned the 23 horses
0: at Santa Anita that that have died recently. Were those all instances in which they had some kind of a cataclysmic injury while racing and then they were euthanized right
3: after? That's mostly what happens. A horse, you know, hurts itself in the midst of a race and then has to be euthanized because the vets simply can't do anything for it. They can't heal the leg. They can't fix the brake. And so what they do is, and I, I hope the most humane way is possible, they euthanize it with a needle. You know, the circumstances vary. Sometimes a horse has an underlying condition that somebody just missed. And sometimes it's worse than that. Sometimes somebody does the wrong thing by the animal. But that was a catastrophe for the, the track. And so you said that abroad,
0: horse racing doesn't see anywhere near this high level of fatalities among the horses after races. What are the steps that could be put in place in the U.S. that would help bring down the the death rate?
3: Well, one of the things that is an advantage in Europe is that the racing is on turf, which is much easier on a horse's legs than a hard dirt track. Another measure that people are suggesting, particularly in the wake of the Santa Anita catastrophe is, you know, some sort of monitoring tool that monitors the moisture level in the track so that horses aren't running through, you know, really heavy soup that's going to overstress their legs or or create injury situations. Churchill Downs is one of the deadliest tracks in America. Their death rate is 50% higher than the national average, even in America, uh, which nobody really likes to talk about. But the the Kentucky Derby is run at, at a track that is incredibly dangerous. And they finally have agreed to put an equine hospital right there on the grounds, and you hear that, and you go, I can't believe they didn't actually have that already. Another thing that they have agreed to do is to try to advocate against overuse of these anti-inflammatory medications and other medications that that really mask whether a horse is in distress.
0: Do you feel like if all of these practices were put in place, that that would be enough to solve the problem of danger in horse racing, or? Do you think that there is a conversation to be had about whether this is a sport that should continue
3: existing at all? You know, I mean, that's certainly something to think about is, is is this really just abuse? As someone who's been around horse racing a little bit, who wrote a book about it and spent a year in the barn areas talking to trainers and, and going to horse farms, if you watch young horses, they do run for fun and they run in circles. Thoroughbreds run. That's what they do. I think the main responsibility that horse people have is to mitigate the risk. Your your human handlers have an enormous, profound, really, responsibility to care for that animal and mitigate the risk as much as possible. Horse people all the time try to, they try to say, well, nobody loves the animals more than the owners and the breeders and the trainers. Well, when are they gonna show it? You know, when are they gonna really prove it by getting together, you know, pulling all of the mutual interests together in the same room and saying, we are either going to improve this sport and take better care of these animals, or we are going to lose the sport in this country and it will be outlawed, if not heavily regulated. You know, that's the choice facing them. I think that the, the interests in, in thoroughbred horse racing in America really have a crisis in front of them. They're going to lose this game altogether if they don't start taking better care of these animals.
0: Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Post. In 2004, she wrote a book on the first New York bred horse to win the Kentucky Derby. It's called Side. Now, one more thing. I
4: don't know what I'm doing, man. I look at my parents and how strong they are and how they just know everything's going to be okay because they have God.
0: There's a new show on Hulu about what it's like to be young and religious in America.
4: This Ramadan, I really want to do it the right way, man. It's been a weird year. And I feel like if I can just do this the right way, I can figure my out. I remember doing stand-up during Ramadan and I was fasting and I broke my fast at the show.
1: So Rami Youssef is a stand-up comedian and he's also the star of a new show on Hulu called Rami.
4: I just had a glass of water at a bar and then went on stage and started talking about it and I could feel there was this tension because it was me just talking about wanting to fast. It wasn't my parents, you know, I think the bit would usually be yeah, it's Ramadan, so uh, you know, I gotta hide making the sandwiches so my mom doesn't find me, you know, it's you can hear it, you hear the joke, like, oh man I'm sneaking it in before I get home, you know like that kind of thing, where it's like this imposing force that, you know is being put on and for me that's just never been the tension in my life it's been no I want to fast and and I did today and I also wanted to be here and tell jokes at this bar
1: and Rami's show on Hulu explores that very tension
4: this character is religious you know he believes in his religion and, and he believes in God and he's also drawn by his desires that contradict that and I think everyone has what they believe and then what they actually do And some of us are better at it and some of us are trying to get better at it.
1: My name is Elahi Azadi. I'm a pop culture writer with The Washington Post. And, you know, the specificity of this narrative is so rare and unique. But beyond even that, having a character who is young and is trying to have that closeness and, for instance, just even trying to make room for prayer in his life is not really something That you see often within pop culture, especially within comedy, that that be treated with any sort of respect or even sense of that this is a valid expression that one could have. It's often treated as a total joke.
4: It's so funny that that, you know, believing in God is like punk rock or something, you know, it's just like, what? You know, this is that's crazy. Um, it, it, It felt like the space that I wanted to talk about.
1: I think a lot of times when you think of characters in your mind of a character who is quote-unquote religious or a character for whom prayer is important, that feels like a very humorless character to you. And so this presents a different kind of archetype.
4: I want to talk about the things that make me laugh, that make me think, and I want to ask the questions that are on my mind, and I want to purposely give no answers because that's not my job. My job is to ask questions. Answers, I think you need to be really smart to do that. I'm not qualified to do that. I dropped out of school pretty quick. I'm really good at asking questions and getting a laugh and then getting out.
1: The show depicts that there are no easy answers and it's not a how-to guide on how to live and it's not trying to preach to people. It's really like one person's very individual journey. But as we know, when you watch someone's very personal, individual journey, it causes you to consider your own a little more deeply and think about it maybe a way you didn't before. Alahe Azadi
0: is a pop culture writer for The Post. Hulu announced last week that it renewed Rami for a second season. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode at postreports.com. And join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Martine Powers, and we use the hashtag postreports to talk about the show. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.